This morning we have the incredible privilege of meeting Jesus in the Gospel of John during his last hours of freedom. Not necessarily his last hours of life, but his last hours of freedom. No other part of Scripture contains this segment that we're going to look at. The Gospel of John is unique in all the Gospels that it, it spends four chapters on one night, the last evening of Jesus Christ. And we are just beginning that this morning. John chapter 13 through 17 contains uh, the elements of what we call the Last Supper. So we're going to see the beginning part of a conversation that Jesus has knowing the cross awaits him. Knowing that these are the last hours of freedom that Jesus Christ has. And I want to set the scene like this. And so, on Sunday, we have, we have looked at the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ, where he made himself into uh, Jerusalem, and there was cheering, and there was, uh, there was hallelujah, there was praise, that was, that was Sunday, and then Jesus left the city that night, and he came back in the next day. In fact, Jesus left the city each day, the city of Jerusalem, he left each day at the end of the day. And he came back in. He could have departed any time he wanted to. But he kept coming back to Jerusalem because Jesus knows he has an appointment with the Roman cross and he wants to keep that appointment. So Sunday, the triumphant entry, Monday, is the day of controversy. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he basically assaults the temple. He, he turns over the, the, the tables and he drives out the vendors and the animals and he takes charge of the temple for the entire day and then he leaves Jerusalem. And then on Tuesday morning, he comes back in. And this is a day of teaching. Jesus is in the temple courts and he's teaching and he's teaching and, and experts in the law are sent to try to trip up Jesus and they think they have unsolvable problems. Jesus bests them at every turn. And then there's Wednesday. That's the day of prophecy where if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 24 in particular, Jesus is in the temple again, in the temple courts, doing some teaching, but then he prophesies about Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as well as he uh, includes some end times prophecies as well. And then there comes Thursday, and that's the day of the Last Supper, the day of betrayal, the day of the rest, and the mock trials begin Thursday night. They, they go all through the night into early Friday when finally it concludes with a formal trial at daylight and Jesus is sentenced to die. Friday is the day of crucifixion. Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. Sunday is resurrection day. John 13 through 17, Thursday night. That's where we meet up in Jesus, with Jesus in the Gospel of John in our study. We will meet him on Thursday night. Last words are to be lasting words. And that's where we catch up with Jesus. He knows his time is short. I want you to listen attentively today because we all have moments when we have to decide if we're going to follow God. And it's going to be, at times, inconvenient. At times, no fun at all. And at times, just plain hard. And I think we have something that we can learn from Jesus Christ as he stepped into the black hole of sin and he was faithful to our God. My aim this morning is to show you the difference it can make in your life when you follow Jesus, even when it's hard. We'll look at three movements in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. First, we'll see 
Jesus as Lord, and then we'll see Jesus as teacher, and finally we'll see Jesus as example. If you haven't turned there already, please turn to the Gospel of John chapter 13. We will cover this morning verses 1 through 17. I'm going to start by just reading the first five verses. And as I read these first five, look for repetition. One of the ways the writers of Scripture would emphasize something was to repeat it. And so there's going to be something, and I'll go over this again, but there will be something that's repeated in these first five. So chapter 13, verse 1, Gospel of John, here we go. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You might have a translation that says he showed them the full extent of his love. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, so here's where I see the repetition, and this is where I see emphasis, as John opens this great, not just chapter, but this great segment. Everything we want to know about the Last Supper and, the, and what Jesus is about to endure, we need to see in these first three verses. In verse 1, Jesus knows he's going to leave the world and go to the Father. What's implied there is Jesus knows he's going to die. Beyond the crucifixion, Jesus knows of the resurrection. Beyond the resurrection, Jesus knows with certainty the ascension to the right hand of God the Father. He knows all these three elements just as easily and readily as he knows the one. We, we, we think most readily is, is the crucifixion. Yeah, he knows that. And he knows beyond the crucifixion is the resurrection. What we sometimes miss is the ascension of Jesus Christ. So he knows that too. And he's counting on that. Verse 2, our defeated enemy, the devil, is active in the betrayal of Jesus, uh, done work, working in Judas's mind and heart. In other words, because of the devil and Judas, things are going to get really, really bad for Jesus. And they're going to get really bad really fast. Verse 3, all things are under the control of Jesus. He has come from God and is returning to God. Even when circumstances in the life of Jesus Christ are as bad as they can possibly be, God is in control. And Jesus knows that he is going to die. And he knows that he's going to be raised from the dead and that he will ascend to the Father. Okay, here's the repetition as plainly and as clearly as I can state it. Verse 1, Jesus will ascend to the Father. Verse 2, Jesus will descend to the grave. Verse 3, Jesus will ascend to the Father. 
The emphasis is on the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus is mentioned nine times in the Gospel of John. Eight of them come from Jesus himself and the very lips of Jesus. This is the only time when it's not Jesus speaking and John is giving us his commentary as he reflects and he, he writes his Gospel and he understands what is it that Jesus knew when he went into this hard part of life. He knew the ascension was, a, was at hand. Crucifixion, yes. Resurrection, yes. But the ascension of Jesus Christ, what that means is Jesus is in control, even when it looks like life is out of control. Jesus is in control. It's as if John is saying, no matter what happens, no matter what you're about to read, no matter how bad the people are, no matter how bad things get in the life of Jesus Christ, Jesus will persevere, not because God delivers him from suffering, but because God delivers Jesus through the suffering. You cannot read the rest of the Gospel of John accurately unless you understand this. God is in control. Even when the bad things happen. And even when the bad is really bad. God is in control. Oh, how much we need to be reminded of this today. It seems like um, no matter how many years go by in my life, I always seem to hear somebody say, with regard to our culture, it's as bad as it's ever been. You know, I heard that 20 years ago, and I heard that 25, and when Julie and I were contemplating bringing kids into the world, we heard it. No, should we even bring kids into the world? It's getting so bad here. It's always been like that, and perhaps it will never be not like that until Jesus comes. Not only that, we live in a, in a world where we receive daily reminders that we are sinners, have been saved by the grace of God, yet we are still weak in our fellowship of Jesus, and we are aging. Talking this morning with a few guys, yeah, we, boy, we can swap stories. We are aging. We are rapidly appro approaching the end date. We just don't know when that is. We need to be reminded of this, that Jesus Christ has saved us as Christians and he has purchased a place for us to live with him for eternity that is safe and secure from all that ails us or scares us. Now we are barely started in John chapter 13 and we have 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 yet to go and yet we've already encountered something that's really, really important for us to understand and to keep with us as we travel this journey through this portion of the Gospel of John. It's simply this. Jesus wins. Very clearly, this will be a decisive victory. No doubt about it. It's not like we're on the edge of our seats wondering what is going to happen. No, Jesus wins. Clearly, Jesus will win. And Jesus will be to going to death and back in order to, to achieve that victory. I love the words of the old hymn, This is My Father's World. Here's just an excerpt. This is my Father's world, oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. We read in verse 2 that Jesus loved them to the end, and you might again have a translation that, that Jesus showed them the full extent 
of his love. That's not just this, this moment in the foot washing that we're going to read about. That's not just this, this meal that he shares with them. Jesus loved them to the end, meaning all the way to the end of his life. There was not a moment of agony when Jesus was on the cross that he was not loving toward people, including the people who had placed them there. Do you remember when the last seven words of Jesus Christ, we call them the last seven words, seven statements really, when Jesus was being crucified in the seven, uh, I think the, it was the first amongst the seven where he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Even in agony and in pain, Jesus is exuding love. There's no moment of agony that is not met with the love of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And there's no moment of hardship in your life that is not met by the love of Jesus Christ. Your Savior loves you. Do not interpret the love of God by your circumstances. Please, interpret your circumstances by the love of God for you. Jesus as Lord is firmly in control. Circumstances that would be overwhelming to us are not overwhelming to him. Knowing that he is Lord and he is about to leave this world gives Jesus the freedom to receive whatever comes his way. Whatever the God has sent, God has sent to him, whatever his Father has sent to him. But it also gives Jesus the freedom to treat everybody in that room equally. In that room, we know the, uh, the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and others. There's also an apostle called Judas in the room. And he is no less loved by Jesus. He is equally loved by Jesus. Understanding his own lordship allows Jesus to take the role of a servant more literally, if it would help you to understand the magnitude of this, Jesus takes the role of a slave. Jesus takes the role of a despised Gentile slave who has no hope of a better life or doing anything better in his life other than washing the dirty, grimy feet of the guests of the house of the master who enslaves him. Jesus takes that job for an hour. Now, this event is symbolic. It has much more to do with spiritual lessons, and we'll start to take that apart. Then uh, it has much to do, more to do with the spiritual than the cleansing of, of physical feet. Okay, so that's the, the aspect, the dimension of seeing Jesus as Lord. And now, thanks to Peter, we're going to see Jesus as teacher. Let's read verses Um, you know, I've been over this so many times. I'm wondering, did I read verse 2, falling forward? Did I do, Julie, did I read verse 2? I got a yes from that. Let's pick it up with verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. 
No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then the Lord said, Simon, or then, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. Boys, I read that. You don't know how much discipline I had to apply to myself to not interrupt my own reading and start commentating on these verses. This is just amazing. But I might get lost in my thoughts, so I, I read the whole thing. Here we go. Now, on a general level, looking at this phrase, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand, verse 7. How many of us need to hear that from God this morning? Or needed to hear that at a, at a point in time? You do not realize what I'm doing now, but later on you will. I've been there. I think a number of you have as well. You might have a translation that, um, you're not, that says something like, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but afterward, you will understand. Okay, so what's the afterward? Well, that refers to the cross, but not just the cross, because the resurrection makes sense of the cross. But not just resurrection, because Jesus prophesied, predicted ascension. So that whole package needs to be completed before Peter and others will understand what has just happened. Does anyone here seem to struggle from time to time with the way things are, but then later it makes sense? After you see the outworking of God. Oh, that's why we didn't have our own children. Oh, that's why I lost a job. Oh, that's why I, I had to move, didn't want to. Oh, that's why the money came in just when it did. God understands the end from the beginning. We have a more primitive way of understanding our lives. We have to let time pass. God is not bound to that. And he often works in a process that involves, for us, the passing of time. Well, the pushback that Peter gives shows that he doesn't understand. Even after Jesus gives him some insurance, you'll, un you'll understand later. Peter still objects. No, you shall never wash me, he says. With the foot washing, I'm going to remind you again, Jesus washes, or he serves, Jesus serves like a slave. He serves all of the disciples, including Ju Judas, the betrayer. Jesus literally stooped down, taking the normal role of a slave to wash the dirty feet of Judas. Peter, James, John, Matthew were there. Judas also received equal treatment. We can become readily aware of who's on our team and who's different than us. We can put a lot of emphasis, a lot of attention into who thinks like us, who votes like us, who lives like us, who loves like us who possesses like us. And that can become divisive even, even in the body of Christ. Jesus said something uh, very profound, but it's easy to miss because it's a figure of speech. And I think it's readily apparent as we work through this that it is a figure of speech. 
Uh, let's see. Uh, second part of verse 8, Jesus said, I answered, Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I think it's important that Jesus said, unless I wash you, not unless I wash your feet. That was the, um, that was the moment of, of uh, initial conflict or a pushback that Jesus, that Peter was giving Jesus. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you. He doesn't say, unless I wash your feet, let's do this thing right here that I'm trying to represent. No, he said, unless I wash you, all of you, and then Peter kind of gets something was going on bigger than the feet. Well, how about my heads and my, my or my, my uh, hands and my head? How about all that? Jesus is speaking figuratively, and Peter is listening literally. The foot washing is symbolic of the cleansing work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Sometimes we use the phrase, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we said something about uh, the blood of Christ, or we sang something about the blood of Christ can make us clean. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that the blood of Christ cleanses us or purifies us from every sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. The reason we put an emphasis on blood is that life is in the blood. So Jesus exchanged his life for our life when he shed his blood. This statement made by Jesus, unless I wash you, you have no part of me, is yet another endorsement of the cross by Jesus Christ. He knows he's going to die. He's no, he knows he's going to go to the cross. <coughs> he knows he's going to shed his blood. Because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can stand clean before our God. One of the things that helps me to understand how a particular writer uh, is coming across, or in this case, it's the very statements of Jesus Christ, is I want to look elsewhere and see how somebody else handled this kind of a, a doctrine or position or theological truth. So I have a place I want you to turn to in your Bibles. It's not in the Gospels. It's after the Gospels. If you could find the book of Colossians. This is written by one of the leaders of the early church, the book of Colossians. Paul wrote a letter about Jesus to a local church that was established in Colossae. So Colossians chapter 1, Paul is going to be talking about the blood of Jesus Christ and how God sees us because as Christians we've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's see how Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1. We'll pick it up with verse 19. And I know this is in the middle of a paragraph, but it will make sense. We're just going to start reading with verse 19 of Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The war has ceased, if you're a Christian, because you have claimed the blood of Christ as your own. Let's read on. This tells us how God sees us because of the blood of Christ. We've been washed in the blood. How does God view us? Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, contrast, you used to not be a Christian. Now you are a Christian. You used to not be uh, in Christ. Now you are in Christ. Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's 
physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Wow. So I've got three phrases here to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Again, repetition is emphasis in Scripture. He just said the same thing three times. You are clean, you are clean, you are clean. If you are in Christ, you are never not clean. It's possible to be out of fellowship with God. But if you are in Christ, you are clean. That's your standing. That's your position before God. You, in a very literal, spiritual way, you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, let's go back to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, the initial cleansing is a once-for-all act. We are clean. Let's read on uh, verse 10. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, not everyone was clean. Uh, you can, I think you can see in this passage, we're going to go to another one in a moment that will make it abundantly clear, Jesus saw two categories of people. Those who received him and those who rejected him. Eleven apostles are clean. One apostle is not clean. Being a good apostle did not save the eleven. Being a bad apostle did not condemn the one. This really obliterates the idea that religion can save you somehow. If religion could save you, Judas has one of the top spots. Handpicked apostle of Jesus, spent three years with Jesus, wandering around, following him, keeping the books, maybe smoking the books a bit, but kept the books. Religious guy. Follow Jesus. In the steps of Jesus. Wow. Judas. Top position. You might remember that I, I have said from time to time as we've gone through John that that initial portion that John writes when he opens his gospel, what we sometimes call the prologue or the introduction, it's almost as if that tells us everything we need to know. And then he just expands on it. Let's go back to that. John chapter 1. Verse 12, this is worth looking at. John chapter 1, verse 12. What I'm suggesting is there are two categories of people that Jesus recognized. Those who received him and those who did not. Those who rejected him instead of receiving. So let's look at this, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's nothing that we encounter in, God, in, in the Gospel of John that would lead us to read John 13 in any other way. It's not about being a good apostle or a bad apostle. It's all based on receiving Jesus Christ that you're called 
a child of God. Now, even though the cross has not yet happened when Peter is having his conversation with Jesus Christ, Peter has received Jesus as Israel's Messiah, as the Son of God, and the soon-to-be Savior of the world. Yeah, we can argue that Peter doesn't quite comprehend the cross yet, and that's going to be something that he's just going to struggle with. Yeah, but he's totally received. He's bought in. Jesus, I'm yours. You are mine. But there's more in John 13 with this statement. Let's see, where did I leave off? Um, you are clean, though not every one of you. When Jesus says you are clean, the word you is plural. He's not just talking about the individual Peter. He's talking about the whole group of them, but not Judas. Peter is representative of the, the group. And the group of apostles is representative of all who become Christian. You are clean if you have received Jesus Christ. The New Testament washing of the blood of, or washing in the blood of Jesus is uh, completely effective for those who receive Jesus. In contrast, the betrayal of Judas is an expression of the rejection of Judas. The, I guess I could say the rejection of Jesus by, Jesus by Judas. You can either receive Jesus or you can reject him. You can't do both and you can't do neither. To not receive Jesus is to reject him because he comes to you and makes the offer. Okay, so the third movement in this passage that I see, the third dimension of Jesus, is that of example. Jesus is our example. Let's take a look. We'll finish reading uh, our, our uh, paragraphs here. Start with verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, Jesus put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Such humility that Jesus displayed here. Humility before God is understandable, and so is humility before a king. But humility before those who are less than you. Wow, that truly is humility. As teacher and Lord, Jesus demonstrated humility through service that was normally assigned to a slave. And in doing this, Jesus set them an example. The example is not go to the cross. That hasn't even happened yet. The example is serve one another. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is what life in the kingdom is all about. This is what kingdom people do. They serve one another. 
Foot washing was not to be expected, but neither was the cross. Foot washing was a surprise. The cross was a shock. You mean the sinless, revered Messiah goes to the cross to hang on a tree? That was a shocker. But he assumed the role of despised servant to carry out both of those tasks, both the foot washing and the cross required abject humility from Jesus Christ. Now, let's not forget the motivation for a service, we were, for this humble service. We read it right at the very beginning. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He showed them the full extent of his love he showed them love to the very end. Maybe you have noticed from time to time when you've been on the receiving end of service, or maybe you've even noticed this within you as you've rendered service to another. Sometimes people serve and they want to know that they serve. They want, they want you to know that they served you. Sometimes people serve and they want credit for the other people that they served. Did you see what I did? Sometimes people serve, but they want to choose how they will serve and when they will serve and who they will serve with. So how do you know you're doing it right? Very, very long time ago, pre-kids. I was at a retreat and I heard a pastor say, you know you are a servant when you don't mind being treated like one. That's when you're doing it right. That means no credit, no smiles, no handshakes, no notoriety, no points, nothing. It's just service. Now, if you serve me and I see it, if you serve the church and I know about it, I will commend you. I will say thank you very much. Glad you're, on, glad you're here. Thanks for doing that. I don't intend to make a point by not saying thanks. If I don't say thanks, it was an oversight. But the attitude is, I'm going to serve, even if it, it's in a room where nobody will ever see and nobody will ever know. But God will see. And God will know. And that's enough. Fortunately for us, Jesus did not serve in the way that we sometimes serve. God chose this for him. And then he chose the, to do the Father's will. So I have an idea for you uh, to try to bring this into your life this week. This week, serve somebody. And serve somebody with no expectations of getting anything back at all, ever. Jesus set us an example. He says he wants us to be like him. Let's try that. The challenge that Jesus extended is to live like Jesus and to love like Jesus so that we might look like Jesus to a watching world.
A few years back, I read a simple little book called The Gospel. There's one slide. I have one sermon slide. Let's see if you can bring it. Here we go. You nailed it. Thank you. So, nice little green book. This is in the Nine Marks series. They've written a bunch of books that are about this size for the church. Very readable, accessible, uh, easy to read. Here I am on page 65. I'm going to read three quotes. What does the gospel create in this present world that wasn't here before? That's a great question. That's one quote. Here's a second one. Not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Third one. In its doctrine and culture, words and deeds, such a church makes visible the restored humanity that only Christ can give. We have these little books in our bookstall, and we do half price if you compare it to Amazon. I happen to have two other copies that I want to give away. If you'll commit to reading it, I'll, I'll give you a free copy. Otherwise, go to the Welcome Center and get it for half off. Um, but I'll have two copies with me after this service. Here's one of the points uh, that I'm not going to read. I'll just give this to you from, from this book. So you've got a watching world that's looking at the church or a series of local churches or a bunch of Christians or maybe even an isolated Christian. And, and uh, Ray Ortland makes the point, you know what, it, it's fair for somebody who's unchurched to look at the church and draw conclusions about what the gospel pr produces. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ, although very unique, will we'll never have full aspects of his ministry, for sure. But he does show us what it looks like to know God, to please God, and to live a godly life. Jesus, as Lord, served people with the foot washing and with the cross, humble service. This service demonstrated humility, and as a humble servant, Jesus is our example. Humble service is only one way to follow Jesus, but it is a necessary way to follow Jesus. Try that on this week. See if you can follow Jesus in humble service to another. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the gift of the morning. We get to be here today and read from the Gospel of John and hear these thoughts taught to us. Such a privilege to open the Word of God in our own language. Love that. Such a privilege to open the Word of God in a room that is safe and warm and secure. Love that as well. And again, such a privilege to open the Word of God with our brothers and sisters in Christ and maybe a few onlookers. I love all of that. And friends, if, if you are new to Christianity or if you are a straight-out skeptic, I'm with you. Boy, I've been there, and I remember those days. I would love to have a conversation with you about Jesus and the integrity of the Bible, the truthfulness of the gospel. 
it would be my privilege to talk to you. For all of us this morning, we've been challenged somewhat by the words of Jesus, but even more by the actions of Jesus. Wow. Can we do that? Help us, dear God, to serve you by serving people. Even people that at times we might not like very much. Help us to love like Jesus all the way to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.